I hopefully not going to keep you too much longer this morning. It's been a busy morning. Um, I do want to ask Team Timothy, at, during the message, I'm going to tell you four things, four ways to live during the message. And I'd like you to put your name on the paper, and I'd like you to jot down, and if you need parents' help, that's fine, four ways that we're supposed to live that Jesus taught us when He came. We talked last week about how the grace of God appeared bringing salvation to all men. Talked about denying ungodliness and, and, and lust. Well, today we're going to look at four things that teaches us about living. This is why Jesus came. To teach us to, to, to do the things we talked about last week. But this week we're going to see four ways that we're supposed to live. And it's going to be live this, live this, live this, and live this. Okay? So listen for those words. Um, it's when I and I'll stop and I'll pause and make sure you get them. But I'll read the passage again so that you have it. Um, Ephesians or Titus chapter um, two verse eleven. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Now there's one more. Looking for the glorious appearing, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. So um, he says, what did the Word of God teach us? It teaches that we should deny ungodliness, deny worldly lust. We saw that this week. This week it says how we should live. We should live soberly. We should live righteously, we should live godly in this present age, and we should live looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Don't worry, I'm going to go back over it during the message as well. So we pick up in verse 11. The coming of Christ, the grace of God appeared in the manger that day. It was the grace of God that appeared in the form of a baby in the crib. In a manger. And it did a lot of things, but here it says it tonight, it tells us how we are supposed to live. The first way we're supposed to live, and you can, is to live soberly. This translation says we are to live soberly. Does anybody, and this is for anybody, not just the, the kids, obviously. Now, we think of sober in one way today, don't we? We think of sober as meaning what? Just tell me. Not drunk, right? Yeah, we think of sober as being not drunk. Um, That's the general thing we all think about. But it means a lot more than that. What does, what do you think, now think about sober meaning not drunk. And what do you think the word sober means in a more everyday, practical, all around meaning? Any ideas? If it means not drunk, what do you think it means as far as just your normal life? Knowing what's going on. Knowing what's going on. Under control. When I decided to quit drinking, um, it was after I got saved. And that was in my mind, the whole idea of drinking and drunkenness and all those kind of things. Um, I had a terrible time with alcohol before I was saved. And one of the reasons is that I quit drinking is because those of you who know me know I like to be in control of a situation. Um, that's just the way I am. It's just I can't help it. That's just that's just me. And I realized all of a sudden, and I've always been that way. I realized one day that you know what? 
When I get drunk and I lose a weekend from being drunk, when I go to a party and I've gotten drunk, I am not in control. That stupid, wicked alcohol is in control. And I didn't like it because there was no control. So what God is telling us here, what Jesus says, the reason, one of the reasons that Jesus came, one of the lessons comes that comes from the grace of God appearing is that we learn to live with self-control. We're not caught up in every whim and just flashing. We're not caught up at all. I mean, we, we, we control ourselves. We don't get caught up in all the nonsense and stuff that's going on. There's all kinds of ways I could apply this. It allows us to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're under self-control. That means, as tempted as I am, and those who know me on Facebook for a long time know my past on Facebook, sometimes I don't have to respond to every post that irritates me. Usually in a mean, ungodly way. Or a confrontational way. It means that the Holy Spirit controls my words. It means the Holy Spirit controls my life. Um, there's another verse that says, I think it's is it Galatians it says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Is it Ephesians or Galatians? Ephesians. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Great lesson for us. It's, it draws that very clear example. If the Holy Spirit is controlling my life, He allows me to live in a very sober way where I where He controls my life. I keep my life under control. That's one of the great examples that Christians set is that we don't lose the head every time something goes wrong. And I tell you, there are things, there are things going on in the world right now that I, don't, I've only talk, I only talk to Mary about that really scare me. I mean, there are stuff going on that really, if I weren't careful, would scare the daylights out of me. But you know what? The Holy Spirit's in control. And rather than lose the head and go ranting and raving and screaming, we are to live soberly. And I don't know what's going to come in your life this week. We have I don't, several of us face dip, several of us several people face difficult challenges in 2019. We have no idea what's going to happen in 2020. But the but the grace of God has appeared, teaching me that whatever happens next year, whatever happens comes into my life, whatever happens in the world that the Holy Spirit gives me the grace to keep my life under control. So the first thing that that the the Spirit of God came, when the grace of God appeared, it came to teach us to live soberly. Go back to verse um, 12 again. That we should live soberly. Secondly, that we should live righteously. Righteously. Do your best at spelling if you need to, lads. Righteously. Alright? Live soberly. Live righteously. Now, we all know that any righteousness in me is not of my own strength. Any righteousness in me came at salvation when Jesus Christ declared me to be righteous with His righteousness. Righteous means that we are brought into line with God's standards. If you use the word processor very much, you have a, left, a justify left, justify right, and justify fully. And it justified fully, that means that your text is going to line up on both sides. Alright? And that's what this idea of rightness, we're made right, justified, made righteous by the blood of Christ. Righteous, is a, righteousness comes from an old English word 
from a Greek translation that was right wiseness. I act, I behave in a right manner. We're told to live righteously. What does that mean? That means that if I was declared righteous at my salvation, now I'm challenged to be living my life righteously. I live my life in accord with the righteousness which was put on me at salvation. The righteousness of Christ. That means I live a life that reflects the righteousness of Jesus Christ to the world around me. That happened at salvation. It happened when when the baby was born and the whole process of salvation was started. And you know what the easiest way to, the easiest thing, the easiest definition for righteous is? You can say it in two words. Simply do right. That's what we're supposed to do. We were made right in Christ and now it's our task to do right. And we can get into fine points. We can get into all kinds of issues about this and that and what's But you know what? Those of us who are adults, and even, no, all of us in this room, you basically, 99% of the time, whether you're a grown-up old granddad like me, or whether you're a grandchild like the guys in this room, um, you know what the right thing to do is, don't you? Don't we, guys? Seriously? Even when you get in trouble, you know what you should have done. Am I right? You get in trouble at school, you know what you've done wrong. It's no different from us for adults. When I do wrong, it's not because I didn't know to do right. Now that happens occasionally, and we're, we're, we won't not, but generally, we know what right and wrong is. Uh, we have the Word of God to guide us, you have rules, you have parents. And the Bible says he teaches us to live soberly or live under control. And he teaches us, here's maybe an easier, easier way to write it, an easier way to write it. He teaches us to live rightly. I don't know if that's a word or not, but it makes sense, doesn't it? We know to live right. That's what happened when the baby was born in a manger. Grace came. Grace teaches us how to live soberly. It teaches us how to live rightly. And then it teaches us how to live. Anybody see the verse? I want you guys want to look in verse. Uh, you ever, anybody have their Bible open? Any of you guys have a Bible open? Look at verse twelve. After soberly, after righteously. What's the next way we're supposed to live? The next word, um, William. Godly. The third word is godly. Good man. It's the only one when you read it now, you remembered. Do you know that one already? Yeah. Good. All right, live godly. And godly, that, L, that, 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 that suffix L-Y, for most of English, we didn't say godly, we said godlike. And godly is just a shortening of godlike. That little L with an adverb. Yeah, for the adverb, it's an adverb, right? That's an adverb. That's an adverb, and the word L-Y, until about three, 400 years ago, it wasn't even there. It was like. God-like, run-like, walk-like. It was a, so it means we're to live in a God-like manner, a godly way. It's the opposite of what we saw last week when it says it teaches us to deny ungodliness. Ungodliness, we are to live in a godly manner. That means we do what God wants us to do. We strive to be God-like um, in the way we behave. We call ourselves Christian. And the literal meaning of Christian, it was a 
it was a derogatory term initially, and it was it was applied on people. It was applied to people. It was kind of like um, when when it was first first used, I, the word was used this way. It means it was kind of a mock, a mocking. When you say, "Oh, he is a Christian," he's a he's he. You know the word we use that, that I haven't heard much anymore. He's a holier. Okay, it's meant to be an insult. You're one of those holiers. But what are we supposed to be? Are we called to live a godly, holy life? And we make decisions every single day. From the time we get up in the morning to the time we go to bed at night, we make decisions whether to make a godly or an ungodly decision over and over again. When Jesus came, He brought salvation. And those of us who are saved now have the responsibility to live soberly, to live rightly, and to live godly. Okay? The fourth one's a little bit harder. How else are we... It just doesn't end as an adverb. Um, but what, can, anybody, can anybody find the fourth way? It's a bit more difficult because it's not in the exact list. The verse said we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present time, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our God. Do you have it? He does. What is it, William? Okay. So what's the fourth way? Live looking. And that is an exciting verse. The blessed hope. And we have a confident expectation. Are we living every day like we expect Jesus to come back today? Live soberly, live righteously, live godly, and live looking for Jesus to come back. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, Can you imagine what that day is going to be? The church has always looked forward to it. Way back in the last verse of the Bible... Even so, come, Lord Jesus. When John wrote that letter, he was waiting for Jesus to come back. Our own St. Patrick, early in his confession, second or third paragraph of his confession, when he's telling about Christ, he says he is looking for the soon advent or the soon coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Way back in the 5th century, St. Patrick lived a life that was looking for Jesus to come back. And we're supposed to be looking every day. And I, I grew up in a day, my first years of Christianity were a day that, I mean, they went a bit over the top. But they taught so much the churches I was in that we need to live every day looking like today is the day Jesus is going to come back. And that's kind of fallen out of vogue. It's been 40 or 50 years now, 40 some years now. And it's kind of fallen out of vogue in some circles. But guys, the Bible tells us here is just, just like we have to live soberly, just like we have to live rightly, just like we have to live godly, we're, be, we're supposed to live every day looking for Jesus to come back. We're looking for the great God and Savior Jesus Christ to come back again. It goes on to say, it's just an amazing thing, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us. I want to hold the last part to the last part of the message here. Who gave himself for us. Do you really, do you really believe? I know you've heard it preached. I know you've read it. I know you might have. Did anybody read the um what was that series called? Left Behind series? That was so popular a few decades ago. Remember that series? Talked about the when Jesus came back, there's been a couple of films made. Do you really believe that Jesus could come back before this service ends? 
Is anything stopping him from coming? Anything else that has to be done before Jesus comes back? <clears throat> Nothing left. What does it mean to what do you think it means to live? Live looking. Live looking for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How would you how, how would you live if you thought Jesus was coming back in the next ten minutes? Huh? Well, how would you live? Right? How would how, what, how would you make decisions? How, when you make decisions about what to do, if before every decision you thought, "What if Jesus comes back while I make this decision?" All right. Every decision you make, I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this, and you say, but every time you make a decision, you say. What would I want to have done if Jesus came back now? Would that change our lives if we really looked for the appearing of Jesus Christ? I'm saying, if Jesus appeared in the midst of some heinous sin that I'd chosen to commit, I'd still be his child. Okay? I'm not going to lose that. He is He's forgiven my sin. But let's say, let's just say, um, I don't know. I don't even, let me think of... Um, uh, well, let's just say that there's a film on the television that I, I know I shouldn't watch. There's going to be loads of violence. There's going to be sex and nudity and all things that are not good for me to be seeing as a man. And I say, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and watch this movie. And let's say Jesus comes back right in the middle of me watching that movie. How do you think I'm going to feel? Okay? 
This isn't great. Are we living, looking like Jesus Christ is coming back? Remember when my dad was in Vietnam? It kind of takes my age. I, was like, I remember when my dad was in Vietnam. <laughs> wow. That was a long time ago. And it was like six years before the war ended. My dad was in Vietnam on one of his two tours he spent there. And we were going, I think most of you heard this story before. We were going about our business, and Saturday morning, my, the phone rings, and my mom says, um, Dad's coming home. And I said, It's like, Yeah, I know, he's coming home soon, because he was due back to a tour of duty. No, she says, He's coming home. He's in the airport in Nashville. He's going to be here in three hours. All right? And the house went, Dad was coming home. And when you're a military family, Things don't operate the same way when dad is gone as they do when dad is there. Okay? It just doesn't happen. Mom has her own way of doing things. And we spent the next three hours tidying up and cleaning up, picking this up and cutting cutting the grass and all this stuff going on. Why? Because dad was coming home. Now! We're to live soberly. We're to live rightly. We're to live godly. And we're to live looking like looking like Jesus could come back at any minute. Every decision we make, every place we go, we need to be making those decisions based on the fact, what if Jesus Christ were to come back now? That's a very sobering thought, isn't it? Do I live in a way that reflects that I'm living, looking for Jesus Christ to come back? Living so, live soberly, live righteously, live godly, and live looking for Jesus Christ to come home, to come back. Lastly, in verse fourteen, and we're done here. Um, in verse fourteen, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify Him to Himself, His own special people, zealous of good work. Here's what God does. Here's what Christmas does for us. Here's what Christmas gave us. God redeemed us. He bought us back from the marketplace of sin. He paid the price for me to be bought back from sin. He purified us. He made us clean. We're purified. Now we're excuse me, told to live in a way that shows that pure life to people around us. Then it says, He made us. I love this word. I'm going to use the old English word here because I love it. We are to... He, um, he, he redeemed us from every lawless deed. He purified for Himself His own... And I love this word, even though it doesn't mean the same thing at all anymore. The old king... What, what word does the old king James use there, sweetheart? Peculiar people. Alright? When you think of peculiar, it has kind of a negative sense today, doesn't it? You kind of stand out from something peculiar about you. Well, that's peculiar. Or he's peculiar. It's because it stands out. Now, and, and when when the, when the King James translation was translated, that word peculiar meant, and you can almost hear it, it meant precious. It meant something that stands out because of the high quality, because of what it means to its owner. Sorry? Like unique. Like we are his unique people. We are his, we could even stretch it a bit and say it, we are his special treasure. We are to be different from the world. But peculiar does mean different, basically, doesn't it? But he's saying, he says, 
You're my peculiar people. You're going to live different from the world because you're mine. You belong to me, and people are going to, if you're living for me, I redeemed you so that you can live as my own special people. Until Jesus comes back, nobody is going to see Jesus. Right? So how does Jesus, how do, how do we show Jesus to the world today? It's us, right? And we show Jesus to the world by the lives we live. Are we godly and are we Christ-like in our lives? We're His special treasure. In Ephesians, Paul uses the word His workmanship. It's the same notion. We're the master priest. Do people see us and see us somebody who's different? When we're at work or we're at school or we're wherever, do people say there's something, I'll use the word, there's something peculiar about him. There's something peculiar about her. There's something different. And that peculiarity is should reflect the fact that we are God's chosen, unique, and special people. We make a difference. And when the baby came in the manger, the grace of God appeared. It teach, taught, teached us to live soberly, rightly, godly, and live looking, but also taught us he did that he came to make us his own peculiar, his own unique people. Um, and lastly, we'll finish here. He's also made us to be zealous of good works. I that that word zealous, um, it means. Boy, how do I put this? All right, how many sports fans are here? How many sports fans? Um, Dola, you're a Manchester United fan. Would you consider yourself an avid Manchester United fan? A what, sir? Avid. I mean, like, an avid is a fervent follower. Yeah. A fan. The word fan means fanatic. All right? Are you? Would you consider yourself fanatic about supporting Manchester United? Yeah, yeah. I can. I'll, I'll tell you, when I was growing up in Alabama, I was a a um, fervent Alabama fan for the University of Alabama college football team. I was fervent. Um, I mean, we had a, I'll tell you how fervent an Alabama fan I was. We had a really close friend who um, we were watching the Alabama game together, and the husband called to say that the mother was about to give birth to her son, and it was like, get off the mother! <laughs> Alabama's about to score! <laughs> You ever watch, um, you ever see, I, I, I wish I was more of a golf fan, um, but you ever seen the All-Ireland Final at Krog Park? And the people are mad. They're crazy. That's what zealous is all about. And the Bible says that Jesus saved us to make us zealous of good works. We don't do good works haphazardly. We don't do them halfway. We don't do them reluctantly. We are chosen to be zealous of good works. And what better time of year to be reminded of that than this Christmas season? Are we zealous of good works? But the verse in Ephesians, I love the way these two verses tie together, which that time you went to it more, says that we are his peculiar treasure, um, zealous of good works. Ephesians says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. 
in, that we are ordained before the foundation of the world, that we are going to do good works. God's people, we need to be doing good works. Good works did nothing to save you or me. Nothing, nada, not a bit. But those who belong to God, He has called us to be zealous of good works. We're to be reflecting His life to the world around us. We're zealous of doing good and not evil. Just like that, that all Ireland final. And just like the Dublin fans are, despite their five straight years of all, they're still crazy about winning their championships. When Auburn beat Alabama this year, a lot of, a lot of Auburn are Alabama's main rivals. And Alabama's kind of used to winning. Well, this year, Auburn beat Alabama. In Auburn. And the video at the end, the fans broke down the barricades and stormed onto the pitch, ripping up the pitch, tearing down the goalposts. They just, they beat Alabama. And they basically denied Alabama a chance at the national championship. Okay? Their zeal provoked them to just do it. Now, it wasn't good what they did, but they did it. Does our zeal for God provoke us to do good works in the same way? I have to say that Roger Perrow doesn't always do that. Sometimes I have to get up out of my easy chair and do something. I do it because it's the right thing to do. But poor old Mary, I'm, the kids are gone now. Poor old Mary, here's me whinging and griping. And I've got... It's the wrong kind of attitude, guys. It just isn't right. We're look, we live soberly. We live righteously. We live godly. And we love looking for Jesus Christ to return. And if I'm living those four ways, God has redeemed me. He's purified me. And he's made me zealous of doing good works. Do we have the zeal of the Lord burning in us that provoke us to do the, good, the kind of good works that he calls us to do?